0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden.
1: And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And Wade, with new lockdowns being instituted across much of the country and with the Thanksgiving season coming right up, I'm pretty excited that we have an episode that is perfectly suited for both of those things. Yeah, Kevin, you know, we're all about hanging out With family,
0: drama, and all. And the shouting matches. Don't forget the shouting matches. Listeners, first up today, we're going to be looking at Ron Howard's new film, Hillbilly Elegy.
1: We're also going to be offering up our review of Sean Durkin's follow-up to his acclaimed film, Martha Marcy May Marlene, with the Jude Law and Carrie Coon starring The Nest. We're going to get you prepared
0: for family drama. All that coming up on this episode, episode 271 of Seeing and Believing.
1: I thought your mama was going to be (laughs) alright. Be happy.
0: I know I could have done better. But you, you got to decide. You want to be somebody? Listeners, that is a clip from Hillbilly Elegy. We're going to be talking about that film in just a minute. And Kevin, I have to make a confession. So, you know, Hillbilly Elegy became this big thing a couple of years ago. I, being being sometimes the lazy internet reader that I am, I'm scanning. So up until like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, I thought the film, uh, the book, was titled Hillbilly Eulogy. And that that's a different thing altogether.
1: Yeah, you you don't want to mess that up. I mean it, it, in this particular case it kind of almost <laughs> amounts to a similar thing at least. So, you know, it wouldn't have been the 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 most embarrassing mispronunciation <laughs> that that you could have come up with. And and then I just I just looked at it. I think I just looked at the cover for the first
0: time and I was like, oh that's not eulogy. Uh, that's elegy. So uh, we'll get that straight up front. And then I do have to make a confession to our listeners. This is a little behind the scenes, a little behind the scenes tidbit. I made a joke about that film The Nest, and I I related it to Nest thermostats. And you didn't get the joke, and it was a really bad joke. But maybe someone out there who has a Nest will be like,
1: oh, that was... That was good, Wade. Your first mistake, Wade, was assuming that I know anything at all about <laughs> newfangled technology. <laughs> yeah, well, Nest
0: is this is kind of it's kind of weird. So I bought one what uh, did I buy one from a mom or maybe I bought a Google one? They're kind of the same. It's like Wi-Fi thermostat and you can control it from your phone, which is kind of cool, but also kind of scary because if the machines do take over. They can make your house really <laughs> hot or really cold.
1: Yeah, that's that's why, uh, for my part, I prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, and I just burn peat moss for heat during the <laughs> oh. winter times, like our ancestors of old do. Yes,
0: yes. Well, no, I, I think there are a number of listeners out there who are like, great advice, and that's really going to help them get through The winter's months. Well, listeners, we're going to go ahead and hop into our first review of the show. We're going to be looking at Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy. Here's the film's official synopsis. J.D. Vance, played by Gabriel Basso, a former Marine from Southern Ohio and current Yale law student, is on the verge of landing his dream job when a family crisis forces him to return to the home he's tried to forget. J.D. must navigate the complex dynamics of his Appalachian family, including his volatile relationship with his mother Bev, played by Amy Adams, who's struggling with addiction. Fueled by memories of his grandmother, Mama, played by Glenn Close, the resilient and whip-smart woman who raised him, jd comes to embrace his family's imprint on his own personal journey hillbilly elegy is based on jd vance's best-selling book and as we mentioned is directed by none other than ron howard himself kevin i did start reading the book uh a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when I figured out the, the proper name, I actually listened to the audiobook, which was read by J.D. Vance. So I was prepared for this episode. I wanted to ask you, have you read J.D. Vance's book? And did your knowledge of his story influence how you viewed this picture?
1: I did not get on the hillbilly elegy train right when it was... First, really picking up speed. You know, I I was a couple of years late to to that whole conversation after the the discourse around it, I guess, died down a little bit. So I ended up reading it sometime last year. I don't quite remember uh, when last year, but so it's fairly fresh in my mind. And I did not much care for the book. I had some some issues with it, but when I heard that it was being made into a feature film adaptation, I was like. I'll well, I'll give it a chance because the the things that the the problems I had with the memoir were related specifically to its status as a memoir. It seemed a little bit like Vance's recollections of his upbringing and the way he related it to modern so- social and cultural trends it seemed a little bit squishy. Like his stories seemed to kind of shift and change depending on what kind of point he was trying to make with it, which, you know, when when you're reading a memoir, is definitely a problem, at least in my mind. With a Hollywood adaptation, it's almost kind of a given that some of the edges are being sand, sanded off and that what you're seeing on screen is uh, glamorous Hollywood actors portraying a version of the past, but it's not like a document of the past. There's not the same expectations, I guess, that you would have For a Hollywood adaptation as you would for a memoir that's much more positioning itself as a document of the author's uh, Past experiences. So having said that I went into uh, Ron Howard's adaptation with an open mind and It's very bad. I have to say I do not think this is a very good film although the reasons that it is bad are different from the reasons that, the, that I thought the book was, was problematic, if that makes sense. <laughs> well,
0: I think we can gr- agree on some things, but not on others. So, yeah, I just finished uh, listening to the audiobook yesterday, and I I liked, I liked the book a lot. Now, I know that the book has kind of taken on a life of its own since the 2016 presidential election, and i'm not up to speed on that conversation but i i think the book captures a feeling it captures a a moment i guess and it captures uh, a glimpse at a certain group of people now i totally get what you're saying with certain stories shift and move based on on what vance is trying to say but I think what's happening is he's wrestling with the complicated nature of of his family with this group of people, and anytime you do that, you're going to have contradictions. Uh, you're going to have to present certain stories this way to, to share this side of of people you love and care about, and then you're going to also have to share other stories. And I, I I thought I thought it was pretty good. I think there are parts of the book that are going to offend. Certain people, probably everybody, you're probably going to be offended or at least feel uncomfortable with certain parts of the book. But I, I did enjoy reading it. Obviously, it's not perfect, uh, but I think there's a lot to glean from the book. The movie is really the movie's not good. Uh, I, I'm not uh, one to see it as kind of like a dumpster fire like other people have, and I, I. I I thought that it definitely kind of picks up speed towards the end. The, the problem is, is this feels, I almost want to say like a sanitized, but you mentioned a Hollywood version of Vance's story. And Vance is not this poetic writer. Uh, he, his book is interesting because he has some wild stories to, to tell. And he, he tells them in a clear way. At the end of the book, uh, I felt like I got a sense of who the characters were. When I watched this movie, it seems as if the characters are less dangerous and even less endearing than those in the book. They don't feel—they don't feel real. I feel like I'm watching people acting. I'm not watching a story. There's never a point where. I don't think or don't think about myself watching a film. I know I'm watching a film. I'm not caught up in these lives the way that I feel I should be. And and that's a huge problem, especially if this movie is trying to capture a slice of life, which in the end just it it just doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, about that slice of of life uh expression you use. This is a film that I think it's it's kind of at least in my opinion it's kind of bad all the way through. I don't think that the the, the casting isn't very good. I think that uh, Gabriel Basso sadly is just not really up to the task of portraying Vance in a in a way that really lets the viewer into his his internal emotions. He's just very he's very bland. Amy Adams is just kind of she's really out there, and as you know, Wade, I'm a big Amy Adams fan, (laughs) so to see her kind of turn in a performance like this was was disheartening for me. Uh, Glenn Close, similarly, Uh, you know, the the performances aren't very good. The directing and and the editing is kind of, it, it doesn't feel like it really manages to ring any additional meaning out of the screenplay, but I think the screenplay is maybe this film's foundational sin. It's really bad. I I mean, for all of what I see as the book's faults, I don't think that one fault you can lay at its feet is uh, caricaturing. Like, Vance, uh, he doesn't uh, stereotype, I guess, his family or the kinds the the culture that his family hails from it feels pretty much true to his experience this film vanessa taylor's screenplay really feels like it was written by somebody who kind of just imagines what a quirky plain-spoken tough-talking rough-riding hillbilly would speak like and then just kind of shoves those words into their mouth without any regard for, number one, if anybody ever actually talks like that. Number two, if what eventually results from that dialogue is characters who feel like human beings who are fully formed and have full, fully realized internal lives, I don't get any of that from from this dialogue. It's just there. there are things that Glenn Close says in this movie that I would be surprised has ever passed the lips of any human <laughs> being. It, it, it's the sort of it's a sort of colorful language that comes straight from a from a screenwriter's brain, but not like if if it is actually the way that some people talk, it's not it's not delivered with this kind of like it's snappiness. It's I don't. Know, it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly what's so. Tenured about it, but it's really tenured, and out of all out of that artificiality, I guess everything else kind of falls like a, a, a line of dominoes.
0: Yeah, and I think we talked about this briefly before we started recording. I think some of the performances are hindered by the script and by the dialogue, but I there are some scenes with Amy Adams and Glenn Close that are just. Not good and it has to fall on them. There are certain beasts. they just don't, they don't nail. It's just it's not good and it feels the beginning at least uh, for me, feels a lot like a a faith-based film, just the uh, the inability for the performances and the this overly, I don't I didn't even say like sanitized, but this simplistic screenplay. Uh, to mesh. It just it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And if we're thinking about the screenplay, it definitely feels like a lot of the stories in the book were sort of ripped from the pages and put into a blender and and that's it. And the movie is searching for like a frame. It's searching for something climactic. and what it what it's, it lands on is really odd to me. So this is all kind of built around J.D. He's, he's coming back from law school in order to help his mom because she uh, almost overdosed. She almost died. And she's in the hospital. They're trying to find a place to, to put her into rehab. And while he is doing all of this, he gets a call, and there's this very important interview, this very important internship. And he needs to get back by, you guess it, you know, a certain amount of time. And it's all about trying to get his ducks in a row before he leaves. And it just feels, I don't know. I mean, it's important. It's a big interview, but it it feels, it feels simple. It feels, it doesn't feel momentous at all. And yet the film acts as if he will get tossed out of law school and all his dreams will disappear if he does not drive back. new haven connecticut by this time and it's just not it just doesn't it doesn't work
1: well i think part of the reason it doesn't work is the the pacing and the structure feels really off I, i i mean in an ideal world that kind of ticking clock of i have to get back i have this interview everything hinges on this interview i have to get back by a certain time or i'm done that's that could work as sort of a a ticking clock time element where he has to kind of work through uh, his his issues from his past and find a way to care for his mother who's you know just overdosed on heroin uh, while still making it back to kind of continue living his life. The problem is that uh, Howard has structured this film in a way, where the uh, present-day J.D. in law school, his life is interleaved with uh, recollections of his past childhood. And that results in the situation where you're not really— there's never really any sense of momentum uh, built up over the course of the film. It just feels like a bunch of scattered vignettes. Like, there's this vignette from the past where his mother uh, uh, kind of— Freaks out on him in the in the backseat of the car and he's scared that she's going to kill him So he runs away and then it moves to the present and he's trying to figure out a way to Check her into into rehab then we go back to the past and we see another scene and just keeps ping-ponging between the present and the past in a way that Doesn't really build on each other those scenes don't aren't really related to each other except insofar as the overriding message is Wow Uh, J.D. Vance's mother had some real problems, which, I mean, that's true, but there's not really any insight into those problems or into the way it kind of contributes to uh, his, his present day life. It's just they're presented, intercut with each other, and just kind of left sitting there on the table. So when the time comes for the film to find an emotional payoff from that earlier material, it can't do it because there's no emotion in that material. It's just a series of of scenes where actors yell at each other, and then we move on to the next scene. That's pretty much exactly the same. There's just no uh, arc or really discernible uh, structure to the film. It just feels like a mishmash of episodes. Yeah, and I think that's
0: where I think that's where we could touch on some of the themes or some of the ideas. There's definitely there's definitely more to the book than just stories. And and you, you mentioned it. Vance talks about this group of people. He talks about poverty. He talks about why he believes they live in poverty. And as I mentioned before, there's something here to probably irritate both conservatives and liberals. And what's so kind of strange about the movie is it has been sanded down to the point that there's nothing there. There's nothing to wrestle with. There's nothing to contend with. And there's this really great sequence in the book where he talks about J.D. talks about going to live with his biological father. And his biological father is a part of a Pentecostal church and he speaks about the way they distance themselves from society. He talks about his faith. He talks about reactions against his faith and eventually how he turns the corner and comes back. And in the midst of all that is a discussion about church attendance, where he grew up, and the the power of religious participation. And here we get a couple of Bible verses kind of spread around and and nothing else. And so that's just one example of how this screenplay has sort of, and I'll go back to it again, sanded down anything of texture in this story, anything that might make us think or reconsider ideas, or at least contend with something. And so what we get is a poorly made movie where you have to ask yourself, what What's the point of this? Like, what is this? Just the obligatory? It's a New York Times bestseller. We've got to adapt it, or did any of the filmmakers come in and say, "We want to, we want to make something bigger. We want to make something meaningful," uh, because it 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 didn't translate. That if they did, that it didn't translate to screen.
1: There are a couple of montages used in this in this film one's kind of at about the halfway point and another one's kind of at least structurally speaking it reads as the emotional climax of the entire movie this this emotional climax montage is uh we we kind of we jd has reached sort of a a breaking point with his mom where he has where she wants him to stay and take care of her but he knows You know, it's zero hour. He has to get on the road and start driving back to law school, or he's his his law career is done. And at that moment, there's kind of this montage where Howard takes us back and shows us flashes of scenes that have come earlier in the movie, mostly consisting of well, of stuff from his past. But it's it's so it's there are scenes that we've seen earlier in the film. But there's not really any sense of what this montage is supposed to be telling us. Like, what what emotion is Howard trying to evoke by showing, you know, young JD hugging his mother, then getting yelled at by his mother, then getting hugged by his grandmother, then by, you know, breaking something in, in an act of vandalism. These are kind of, they're put together. And it seems like Howard is trying to say something about how those episodes kind of are, have led up to this moment of decision for present day J.D. Vance, but there's no real content there. It feels like an exercise in pure form. You get everything from the music to the place where we are in the narrative to kind of the, the expressions that Gabriel Basso is wearing during this scene kind of tell us, this is this is important. This is the emotional center of the movie and we're supposed to be feeling something right now but everything from those past scenes has been so emotionally inert that they're powerless to make to make us feel anything it just seems like kind of a clip show of the movie that we just saw and again there's just there's no insight brought to it and it doesn't have any of those, um, like you said, those textural touches that bring specificity to this family, the way they see the world, kind of what keeps them going, it's just kind of, again, uh, a conglomeration of stuff. And you, di- I, watching it, at least, I I didn't know how Ron Howard wanted me to feel. I just know he wanted me to feel something, and it just wasn't working. Yeah, I mean, I, I
0: definitely... There was one point when I when I did feel something, and that was towards the latter half of the film when we see Glenn Close's character take basically take charge of of young J.D., who's who's not perfect, by the way. Here, he's not perfect, and she decides that she's going to do everything in her power to make sure he he finds a way out and i've i've i have heard a couple of criticisms about the book what little i've seen people talking about it is oh he you know he talks about how he pulled himself up well you know in the book it's more so hey these these people actually really helped me like it's because of them or it's because of the marines or because of this or that that i'm i'm where i'm at today and we definitely see that in this in this sequence where she tells his Old Friends to Go Away, where she sacrifices for him. And so I think there are a couple of sequences where that works. At the beginning of the film, we get some good scenery shots of Kentucky that juxtaposes uh, the natural beauty with some of the houses uh, that JD's family and relatives live in. And I think I think there, there are brief touches of what this movie probably could have been but it just all doesn't add up and especially towards the end there's a decision made by jd and i guess i i guess i get it and there's some tension there will he get back in time there is tension but i don't know i guess i just don't know what i'm how i'm supposed to feel about the end of the movie like what what is it trying to say and i think part of that is because it it adds this strange little conflict about him getting back in town at the right time, and it just doesn't frame it well.
1: Well, I'm getting to that point, I'm not even really sure what this—like you say, what the point of the movie is, because it does sort of seem like, yeah, this—if we're to take the title of the movie seriously, an elegy is something that's, you know, uh, expressing— uh, remembrance or, or sorrow for for someone who's passed, um, something that's nostalgic, melancholy. That's what an elegy is. So you kind of expect, oh, this is going to be um, him reflecting on his past and kind of more feeling sorrowful over what was lost or what he can't, what he can't go back to, or feeling affection for uh, his place of origin. But the movie kind of ends on this note where he gets back to his interview and the last line of the movie is, I'm just glad to be here. And then, you know, cut to black, which is, which kind of reads like, man, I'm glad to be back here at Yale instead of back there where everything was terrible. Which is not maybe what Ron Howard intends this movie to say. That's kind of what it seems to be saying though. And it feels a little bit, uncomfortable especially in the context of this being a memoir of a man kind of like showing us his family that just seems there's something distasteful about that and whether or not that was intended by the filmmakers here it kind of that's the way it come came across to me in those moments and it feels a little bit exploitative
0: whenever I was watching this I just kept thinking to myself it it, it has got to be irritating to watch someone else put your life story on screen. And and sometimes I guess, you know, they get it right, but I I I don't I don't know how Vance feels about this film. I'm sure he can't express how he truly feels if he doesn't like it, but it's just
1: <laughs> I mean he's got a he's got an executive producer credit on it so I would hope that he would have some confidence in how it turned out. Yeah, it's just I don't know. It it doesn't
0: it doesn't do I felt like what he was trying to do, uh, justice. And um uh, yeah. Well, listeners, that's her review of Hillbilly Elegy. It is streaming on Netflix November 24th. If you have a chance to check it out, went if you have a chance to check it out when it does release, make sure to let us know what you think. Just email us, seeing seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can always tweet us as well at cbeliefpod, cbeliefpod on Twitter. We're going to get to another film that is currently out, the new movie from Sean Durkin, The Nest. That review is coming up here in just a moment. That song is Out of Oxygen by Time At. We want to take an opportunity, listeners, to thank you for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. We really do appreciate it. You keep the show going. We've got a number of different donation levels. One of our favorites, as we've said before, and we'll say it again, is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. You get a lot of great perks, and it begs the question, Kevin, and I'm excited. After the conversation
1: we just had, what are you going to come up with? <laughs> what could someone buy for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get you some turkey-shaped earmuffs. So, you know, if there are any screaming matches that break <laughs> out, you, you come prepared, but you're still festive about it. A tur- turkey-shaped earmuffs. Now, let me ask you this.
0: Is it a, an entire turkey shape on each side or half and half?
1: <laughs> it's uh, it's an entire turkey shape on each side. So it does look like you've got two sm- tiny turkeys kind of sprouting out of your ears. But, you know, it can be a good conversation piece. It might distract the the shouting and redirect it into just bemusement at your at your fashion choices. Yeah,
0: well, people might need that this year. Here at Thanksgiving, a lot of stuff's been happening. A lot of people, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people disagree with each other uh, at this current time in history. Yeah, a lot lot of people do kind of have little disagreements. Uh, But earmuffs that are shaped like turkeys, I think we all agree on that. That's a win. And so, (laughs) (laughs) bye-bye.
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you and I agree on that. At least one other thing that you and I can agree on is that uh, supporting Christ and Pop Culture is a great idea. Um, for five dollars a month, you can uh, become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which not only gets you access to the. Christ Pop Culture members-only forum on Facebook, but also just supports all the great writing that goes up on the site week in and week out. We've got a couple of things we want to highlight for you on the site today if you haven't been there recently. Uh, First up is KB Hoyle's uh, column uh, about stories. This one, she takes a look, Wade, at the HBO series The Vow. It's this Documentary series about Nexium, the uh, the sex cult that was uh, pretty famous for ensnaring some some bigger names and just for how outlandish uh, it really became in its last days. So, uh, Kibi Boyle has some great thoughts about that. We also want to highlight something that has been going up every Wednesday, once a week, since the beginning of this month, and those are the recaps that Matt Pop is writing about *The Mandalorian*. So Mm. I know Wade that that you're a a pretty big fan of the show. I haven't, I don't have Disney Plus, so I haven't gotten into it, but I know that a lot of people are into it, and. You don't have to have seen the show to be into Baby Yoda, so <laughs> I can definitely get on board with that much about it at least. But if you're a super fan like Wade, then those recaps of the second season on Disney Plus are probably right up your alley. Yeah,
0: no, I, I've been I've been digging them because uh, I, I love watching The Mandalorian. One of my favorite things to do every week is Friday, we sit down as a family and watch The Mandalorian. And even if it's a not a great episode, which I feel like there's been a couple of weaker episodes this season so far... Uh, it's still a lot of fun. My, my three-year-old is obsessed with baby Yoda. He made me buy him a little bottle of hand sanitizer that has a picture of baby Yoda on the front.
1: And he
0: takes it, he takes it wherever he goes and he passes it out to people. Um, which I guess that kind of messes up the social distancing thing, but he does it. And so it's, (laughs) it's been, it's been a whole lot of fun watching Mandalorian with, uh, with the family, so I I really do appreciate Matt's recaps. They're they're usually pretty pretty entertaining too, Kevin.
1: Yeah, I I do have a question, Wade. Going back to your anecdote about your your son uh, making you buy him that Baby Yoda hand sanitizer, when he made you do it, did he do that by kind of making a hand gesture and saying, "This is the <laughs> hand sanitizer you're looking for"? Um. Maybe. I don't I don't, actually don't
0: remember.
1: I don't remember
0: <laughs> paying for it. I was at the store and then we were driving home. That's all I remember. You better, better get a and <laughs> count on that kid. Yeah. Well, listeners, as I mentioned, thanks for supporting us. If you want to support us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. If you want to support Christ and pop culture, which is always great as well, just hop on over to christandpopculture.com. On the top right hand corner, there's a red button. It says subscribe now. You support a lot of great stuff on the website, and all of us really do appreciate it.
1: Things are dried up here, for me. <laughs> oh, yeah! There's an opportunity. Where? London. This would be our fourth move in ten Turn years. It backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is a fresh start.
0: How about this?
1: Well, we're back with the second half of our episode. We're going to be moving from the hillbillies of Appalachia to 1980s British financiers in plush country estates. So, Wade, I think that uh, our fortunes are, are looking up, or at least the the setting that we're going to be finding <laughs> ourselves in is, is looking up at
0: least. Well, you know, vices can follow someone anywhere, Kevin, so— It, greed greed and envy, it can go anywhere.
1: Spoken like a true pastor, I would expect nothing (laughs) less. Um, the, The film we are going to be reviewing here in the second segment is one that, for all of its surface differences from Hillbilly Elegy, stars as maybe its central player, good old family dysfunction, which doesn't care at all about the economic situation of the people involved the film is of course sean durkin's the nest here's its official synopsis rory played by jude law is an ambitious entrepreneur and former commodities broker who persuades his american wife allison played by Carrie Coon, and their children to leave the comforts of suburban America and return to his native England during the 1980s. Sensing opportunity, Rory rejoins his former firm and leases a centuries-old country manor with grounds for Allison's horses and plans to build a stable. Soon the promise of a lucrative new beginning starts to unravel, though, and the couple have to face the unwelcome truths lying beneath the surface of their marriage. So, Wade, uh... There's obviously uh, some dysfunction lurking beneath the surface of this story, as suggested by that synopsis. And I know that you've seen uh, Sean Durkin's previous film, Martha, Marcy, May Marlene, which also features dysfunction of a sort, although the specific kind there involved a escapee from a cult trying to reconnect with her sister but there might be some similar elements at play in both films given that they are both from the mind of director and writer sean durkin so my question for you to get us started is what kinds of similarities are you seeing there and how does the nest stack up against that earlier film
0: yeah, so it's, it's been a while since I've seen uh, his previous film, Durkin's previous film. But I, I think I think both of them that I have seen uh, just have such a, such a heavy atmosphere. The films feel weighty. And as we talk about this movie here, uh, The Nest, we're going to talk about drama, we're going to talk about family dysfunction, this is shot like a horror film, which even though it's not quote-unquote a horror film, that lends a certain air to everything that's happening around it. And I think both of those movies do that well. And they're they're both these slow-burn dramas that deal with the tiny edges of our relationships and how those those edges create friction and even flashes fires if you will so i think there's a there's a a connection here i I, i'm not a huge fan of of the nest and we'll get into that as we go go along but uh, there's definitely a lot to commend about the form of this film even though i I wasn't uh, uh big on it overall
1: yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that this film is shot like a horror movie because that was definitely something that occurred to me while while watching this film there's there's certain elements uh, in this picture that really do recall the horror genre. the you know, this family uh, moves into a a, a very old house. It's too big for them. There's all these large cavernous spaces. Doors seem to kind of blow open of their own accord. Uh, there's kind of semi-mysterious things happening around the estate, although there's never really any explicit supernatural elements in this story. It's more just kind of, it's lurking there, kind of beneath the surface almost. And that did make me think of Martha Marcy May Marlene because that film also kind of has its own version of a haunted house where Elizabeth Olsen's protagonist kind of goes to live with her sister at their own kind of pretty nice house out in a more rural part of the country. And that space, that interior space, Durkin just knows how to shoot it in a way that makes you wonder... That window to the outside that's open onto a night sky, is there anything that's going to pop into that window? Are we going to see a face appear in that window? Is something going to run past it? What's lurking just beyond that pane of glass? And I think something similar is going on here with the the physical space of this giant country mansion in England, which is what's lurking just off camera? What What is kind of this subtle poison that... Is that we're seeing work itself out in the life of this family. Was it always there, or is there something about this new life in England that is causing them to their relationships to deteriorate more rapidly? That's that's kind of all in the air. And Durkin doesn't really do anything explicitly supernatural with that. But he definitely intends to create that unease running through this picture. So I, it sounds like I probably liked it a, a, a bit more than you did. I don't think it's as strong, I guess, as the earlier film. But still, I think there's a lot to recommend it about about this new one.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, and I've talked about this before. But the movies, and maybe maybe films have changed. Maybe I'm changing. I don't know. But films that feel like they're trying so hard to be a metaphor for something else. And the opening shot of this film, I think, is fantastic. It shows this suburban neighborhood, this house. It's very obvious from just the look of it. You are in the 1980s. The cars, the brick, it's ominous. And we get this kind of look at the outside of the house, we get Jude Law, he's making a phone call that's kind of setting everything into motion and then we get this slow pan out from the house and it's a great I mean it is a great introduction if we're talking about what makes a home and people's pursuit of home or more importantly satisfaction and then a few minutes later it's you know they're walking through the house and it's uh, Ronald Reagan is president, and it's like okay, you know, we, we kind of understand that. And then Jude Law is is <laughs> you got to be your own boss. And then someone else is saying he's the perfect mixture of old British and new American, and it's like okay, like we we get it, like we understand what this film is trying to say, and and it and it's it says it. It just it's not all that appealing uh, to me. I will say though. If there's anyone who almost pulls off this just in your face, on the nose dialogue, it's Jude Law. And he's he's kind of he's kind of oily as it is. I feel like a lot of the characters he he plays are, are a little ominous. You can't really trust him. And you can't you can't trust him here. He is this he is this refined oil salesman who Seems to know exactly what to say, but he's just, he's just, he's greasy. And he is essentially stating kind of like over and over this is what the movie's about. It's about an unbridled American dream, it, you know, the consumerism that's associated with 1980s uh, America and, you know, all of this. And he's saying it, and somehow he almost makes it work uh it just it's a testament to 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 him as an actor now I I do think Carrie Coon she does a great job as as uh, the mom, the wife in this story she plays Allison and she does good and so uh, there's some good performances I just I, I guess there's just not much there in the material for me to get all that excited or intrigued by uh, by it. It's just kind of a metaphor there's nothing that that happens that's huge it's just, you know, they fight, there it is, and that's it for me.
1: <laughs> well, okay, I, I do agree that there... I did spend a lot of this film kind of waiting for it to kick into the next gear. I, I was sort of... The the tensions that Durkin establishes between the various members of the family, I mean, obviously, there's this sense that uh, Law's, Ro, Jude Law's Rory is... Uh, like you say, he's kind. Of, he sees himself as this smooth operator. He's all bluster. He kind of uh, wants to wants to be big. He wants to to make a lot of money. He wants people to think he's important. He wants to kind of show everybody how fancy and rich he is. He seems very much uh, like this, like that sort of almost quintessential kind of like. Dirtbag '80s financier, like it's just yeah. that's a very familiar type, and Jude Law plays it to perfection. I really like a an observation that another critic made about how um, he seems like he is both. Uh, if you've seen the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley, he seems like he's both Tom Ripley <laughs> and Dickie Green okay. rolled into one in this role. Like he's he's got that smooth operator aspect to him, but you also get the sense that there's this. Insecurity that is driving him to do that. So, I do think it's a master, masterful performance. I think Carrie Coon is really good as uh, his wife, who kind of was swept along by his charm for a little while. And obviously, there's still a lot of electricity between them, even now that they've, you know, kind of been married for a while and have started up this family together. But She's beginning his his charm is beginning to wear off. She's beginning beginning to see behind the mask a little bit, and she's frankly had it. And I think Kuhn plays that dawning realization mixed with growing disgust really well in this in this picture. I did kind of wait for those relationships that get established early on to kind of shift into something where it felt like Durkin was doing more with them than kind of presenting them as is. And I guess if the film has a flaw for me, it's that it never quite gets there. It, it it almost feels like it would have benefited from more genre elements because that would have given the film more to do in its third act rather than set up a miserable family and then get us to the third act and say, yep, they are indeed miserable. <laughs> I, do, I do feel like it doesn't quite find a destination for all this great setup, but I do think that that setup and just watching these crafts people at the top of their game create that picture is its own kind of pleasure
0: yeah and I mean there's some memorable like I mentioned performances there are some memorable images there is one image of a tractor moving a horse's body that I think says it says a lot about what this picture is trying to say I just it just felt a little self-indulgent to me and i'm sure this is just kind of my reaction but i was almost screaming i just want to just i want to feel something just make me feel something film and i was reminded of because this is a film about envy it's a film about greed it's consumerism i was reminded of this passage in Timothy Keller's book counterfeit gods where he talks about how over the years and he's been in pastoral ministry for you know decades Over the years, uh, he's had people come to him and say, yeah, you know, I've I've committed adultery or struggle with lust or uh, I have problems with anger. He said no one's ever come to him and was like, yeah, I'm greedy. Like, I'm greedy. And the idea is everybody knows that greed is wrong, but nobody thinks they're greedy. And I felt like this is one of those films where you watch it and you say, oh, man, yeah, consumerism is is pretty bad. Greed is, and envy is bad. It'll tear your family apart. And then you get to the end, and you pat yourself on the back, and you say, man, I'm really glad I'm not like this family. Like, I'm really glad that I'm not greedy like Jude Law. And there's nothing that connects, I feel like, to our lives. It just essentially says there's a problem, and it's really bad, and... You know, I get done watching and say, man, I'm, I'm glad I don't have that problem. I just I, f- I feel like the film needs something more to connect. Or in the end, it's just kind of a It's kind of an exercise and there's some technique there. There are performances there, but but that's all that I get from that movie.
1: Uh, I don't know. I feel like you're being a little bit hard on <laughs> the, the way the film per- portrays. Uh, these characters' uh, consumerism and kind of their their desire to to be rich, I guess. Like that's that seems to be kind of the animating force, right? It's it's not so much that they they just want more and more and more. I mean, Jude Law's character definitely he wants to he wants more. He want he is greedy, but it's not simply because he loves just buying really nice things. It's more like there's there's something in him that drives him to to get past his childhood where he kind of, he grew up uh, economically disadvantaged. He did not grow up rich. He kind of wants to put all that behind him. He wants to show, show the world that he, he really is big. And the way that you show that is by, you know, having the, the beautiful wife, by having the beautiful house, by having multiple beautiful houses. That's kind of, the, the way that he has been trained to see the world. And I think that Durkin, the way that he writes that character and the way that Law performs him, I, I do feel like the the film goes beyond this point where Rory is merely this object to be looked down on and sort of us uh, allowing us to be pharisaical, to say, like, thank, thank you, God, that I am not like that horrible, you know... Uh, Wall Street guy, you know it's. I think there's there's more going on in this picture than just that. Um, There's a moment late in the film where Law where Rory visits his mother, whom he hasn't seen in at least a decade. She doesn't even know that he's gotten married, that he now has uh, had a son with his new wife. This is all news to her, and that. Scene is just so perceptive in how these family members have grown apart so far, and that the neuroses that drives Rory to be such a acquisitive uh, monster in some ways is because he he's got this hard kernel of resentment and regret stemming from where he came from. And that allows you to have some sympathy for him. And I, I think that that overall, that gives some meat on the bones of what else otherwise could be kind of just an empty rote exercise. Yeah, I mean, that
0: scene, It most of it is good, but it, does, it has to do, it's meant to do some really heavy lifting. And in the middle of that scene, Jude Law's character does something really kind of despicable uh, to alienate... Uh, someone in his life and uh, he shows a, a picture and if you've seen the movie you know, you know what he does and it's once again it's this he, he, he's so far removed from the typical uh, person that anytime you look at his shortcomings it's just he's he's in another world like he's just so he just lies about everything he, he lies about this and that and so when you think about the pursuit of Of money, uh, it just doesn't ever feel like it has legs. And like I said, like I said, Jude Law—if he's—if there's someone who's gonna pull this off, it's him. And I feel like he almost does it, just not quite. I also feel like. These stories surrounding some of the the children in the family. Uh, I don't know if those are fully f- fleshed out. There's this scene where the 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 daughter Samantha is just kind of a, is just kind of a jerk to her younger brother, and the scene works in sequence, I guess, if you will, because we're thinking, okay, this house is kind of possessed, and yet that doesn't go anywhere. And i I get it I mean, I get why this veers away from that you know genre film territory, but it doesn't help pull the threads or tie together any of these threads that it's that it's putting putting before us so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of a number of thing one of the things that I struggle with when it comes to this movie.
1: I think that it's fair to say that when the film widens its lens from the married couple at its center it feels like it it feels a little bit aimless i guess because the the children are interesting enough as far as they go but it's difficult to see exactly where where they contribute to the the film as a whole like the you know the daughter as you mentioned she's uh the she's a child from uh Carrie Coon's previous marriage. And you get the sense that she's kind of she feels like a little bit of a third wheel. She's, you know, not part of this this cozy nuclear family that Law and Coon and their son Benjamin kind of have formed together. She feels like a little bit of an outsider and she acts out because of it. Uh and meanwhile the the younger son Benjamin is a very sensitive kid and he you know, he's too young to really engage in the teenage rebellion hijinks that Samantha does, but he's he's not young enough to really be babied anymore, and he's kind of caught in this limbo as well. But fitting, kind of incorporating those into this drama of dysfunction happening between the central couple, it feels like Durkin hasn't quite figured out what their presence in the narrative is means to the narrative it feels like they're they're almost like window dressing they're kind of there to be collateral damage in this destructive spiral that the couple has gotten into and that I, I agree that that's it feels a little bit unfinished perhaps even though again I think it's all technically really well done I think it's just in that third act Durkin kind of just beats a dead horse so to speak and <laughs> doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really arrive at a place that's particularly revelatory. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and there are a couple of standout scenes. There's one long argument scene in this sort of dark, moody living room. It's very intense. It's very difficult to watch. And the way that the film uses the decorating style of the 1980s uh, seems to work well in its favor. So uh, dark colors, uh, dark wood paneling, brick, Everything just kind of feels a bit oppressive, and I think that's uh, part of the reason why I'm a little disappointed in the uh, on-the-nose material. Because I think the visuals work work fairly well. Uh, just you know, looking at the way houses are decorated today, very light, very airy, and contrasting that just by watching this movie, I think it says so much. So there's a there's a lot to appreciate about the film in terms of its technical style. And, and as I mentioned, again, its performances., uh, it just kind of begins and ends there there for me.
1: I, I mean, i I still think you're being a little bit too hard on it, but uh, perhaps we'll we'll have to leave it there. I do think that this is kind of one of those those chamber pieces that, I don't know. I'd be interested to see if you rewatch this in a year and if you still kind of find yourself <laughs> in the same place about it. I saw I think it was Mike D'Angelo in his review wrote about how this was sort of like the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf for uh, our our a new era, I guess. And I kind of feel that that might be a pretty fair take and that. You know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Is also this this movie that's very claustrophobic and kind of just begins and ends with miserable couples who don't really grow and change all that much. But there's something just in the energy that's brought to that onscreen portrayal that I think uh, makes it makes it worthwhile watching, even if it's not. As scintillating, maybe as a as a different uh, film about similar relationships might be. Yeah,
0: well, it's funny because when I finished watching it, I was like, I don't think I have a need to ever watch this movie again. But you never know. Maybe maybe I'll have a chance to check it out, and maybe you know, maybe I'll I'll change my mind. Listeners, if you've <laughs> seen the nest. Let us know what you think it's currently available to rent and or purchase so you can check that out. Make sure to tweet us at SeeBeliefPod or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We've reached the end of our episode and it's at this point that we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend today?
1: Well, you know, I was I was looking back through uh, the the log that I've kept of movies that I've I've watched in the past, it's just sort of like taking a walk down memory lane, like what did I watch, you know, ten years ago? What was what was I watching? What what did I like back then? And I happened to cross a movie that I feel like I don't know, maybe I just you don't hear all that much about it these days, especially in conversations about Ridley Scott. You know, you think of Ridley Scott, you think of Blade Runner, Alien, but the movie I'm I'm recommending for this week is his 1991 film *Thelma and Louise*, and that is a film that I think is very good. And I don't know, I feel like it tends to get overlooked a bit when talking about the body of work of somebody who's been working for long, for as long as Scott has. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon are just so good as. This, these two friends who kind of find each other and cling to each other to escape from their horrible circumstances elsewhere. It's a tremendously funny movie. It's very touching. Um, it's, I, I just think it's, it's maybe not underrated because it is well regarded, but it definitely doesn't seem to be talked about as much as it should. So, uh, that's my recommendation for this week 1991's Thelma and Louise. Well, I have not seen that movie. I mean, it.
0: I've seen the cover of the film, uh, the, the poster, but I haven't seen the actual picture. I, I do need to check it out. I mean, Ridley Scott, he's, he's one of those directors that uh, he'll, he'll pop out a, a really great movie. And you think about Ridley Scott and you think about, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Alien Blade Runner. But he's got some other films that I think just work uh, really well. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a good pick. I'm going to offer a pick. I think I've think I recommended it already, but it's a good movie I haven't heard much about, and it goes with the theme of rural America. So if we're thinking about uh, rural America and individuals who have been left behind... By society, I think a good story to tell is Todd Haynes's 2019 film Dark Waters. So, Mark Ruffalo stars as a defense attorney who takes on this environmental lawsuit against DuPont. And it's this really long battle over the course of many years where he hopes to achieve uh, justice uh, in the lives of a number of uh, small communities. It's one of those movies that just really makes you irritated, but it also does a good job of just reveling in how difficult uh, sometimes it is to achieve justice. If you're watching a typical Hollywood movie, maybe something like Hillbilly Elegy, uh, it tends to shortcut uh, movements and in dark waters we really get how hard it is how much work is required in order to bring about change. And we got a great performance here by Mark Ruffalo. Also, we mentioned him last week when we were talking about The Queen's Gambit, but Bill Camp plays a really good townsperson here in this movie. He played the janitor, the custodian, of course, in The Queen's Gambit. So he turns in a really good performance. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was a, a really fantastic
1: film. Uh, 2019's... Dark Waters. Gosh, that is a movie that I I actually... I have a, a, a screener from uh, last year's awards season for that film, and I, I haven't gotten rid of it yet because I really want to see it. I just haven't been able to make time for it for some reason. I don't have a very good excuse because, you know, in the age of COVID, what else am I going to do? But it's, it's one that I just... I keep hearing really good things about, and yet I just haven't gotten around to it. So let this be the the recommendation that finally spurs me into action (laughs) on that one. Finally, get around to it because I like Mark Ruffalo. I like Todd Haynes. I like a kind of a based on true story kind of legal drama that is rigorous, like the way you make it sound rather than kind of giving it the Hollywood treatment. So I don't know. It just sounds really, really rewarding. Yeah,
0: and I I think the reason the film didn't take off is because it doesn't necessarily fit into that mold. Because as you're watching it, you do get irritated because it's not always the easiest watch. Um, but I think it, it really does tell a compelling story of, of persistence. So yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. Listeners, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by Christ and pop Our producer, as always is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and
1: Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christinpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.
0: This
1: episode was brought to you in part by The Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan
0: discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.